welcome to Note Doctors. My name is Paul. My name is Jen. My name is Ben. And we are your hosts. We are all university music theory instructors who are passionate about music theory and music theory instruction. In this podcast, we will be talking about all things theory with some of the best music theory teachers in the country. If you want to know more about music theory and the most effective and innovative ways to teach it, this is the podcast for you. Well, welcome back to Note Doctors, a music theory and pedagogy podcast. So we are so excited to wrap up our school year, as it were, with none other than Dr. Timothy Chenette. If you're looking for good ideas to add to your oral skills class, well, you've come to the right place because uh, Tim is dropping all sorts of knowledge bombs in this episode. It was great. And I cannot wait to teach oral skills in the fall. I'm going to tell you Same. what, uh, so I can implement some of these ideas and uh, really kind of expand what um, I already do in oral skills. And so I think you're really going to enjoy this episode. Before we dive in though, uh, Jen, you have uh, Dr. Shinette's bio. I sure do. Timothy Shinette is Associate Professor of Music at Utah State University, where he was named the Honors Outstanding Professor of the Year in 2021. His research seeks to improve oral skills instruction through broader accessibility, greater applicability, and a better understanding of the brain. His textbook, Foundations of Oral Skills, is freely available online. And not only was this a great conversation, but he somehow manages to teach like 80 students at one time in oral skills. So stick around. You've got to hear about it. You know, you, you build up from where people are um, and you teach them how to do it and you give them scaffolding along the way. And, and especially if you're expecting growth, which I hope we are in the business of education, then you don't grade performance on a standard of perfection from day one, right? You, you grade components, you grade process, that sort of thing. And that's not to say that you can't ever grade the performance. You can even say that to pass this class, you have to be able to do X, Y, and Z. Um, but starting with that standard of perfection right from the beginning, grading every single you know, pitch, every single rhythm is one point, uh, I think just communicates bad things about mindset and, and stress and all those kinds of things that are really destructive to student learning. Tim, we are so happy to have you on the podcast uh, to talk with us about all things oral skills. Uh, but before we get into that, we'd like just to chat with you about uh, how you got into it and knowing how much our students loathe oral skills most of the time. <laughs> what what led you to have an interest in that of all the classes, all the things? Because you have you know you have performance experience, things like that. Yet yeah, it's oral skills, right? That you yeah. got into. How did how did you find your way there? Okay, well, so I, I really want to start by giving a shout out to my parents. They're incredible. Uh, composer and a harpist, so maybe I was destined for music theory from the beginning. Um, my mom also taught music lessons to young kids. And so that my introduction, introduction to solfege and kodai syllables and stuff like that was very early. Um, and I think that was just an incredible foundation to have. I actually never took an oral skills class in college. I got a BA at a school that just didn't, I mean, it was theoretically part of theory class, but we didn't do a whole mm -hmm. lot of it. Um, it was mostly some Mac Gamut work on the side and it really just, to me, I, I'm sure my colleagues who didn't have that background appreciated it a bit more, but to me, it didn't seem like a very useful thing. Um, but yeah, so throughout my life, I've just done a lot of musical activities and I never got to the point where I was willing to put in the like two, four, eight hours a day of practice on a specific instrument to be like the superstar performer. 
Um, and so when I was done with college and I was thinking about where to go, what to do, um, I did auditions in piano. Uh, there was a memorable interview that I cried afterwards because it was so bad. <laughs> um, and, you know, it shouldn't be a surprise in hindsight, you know, with me, you know, I just wasn't at that level. Um, but I was doing all these different things. So I had all these different ways of understanding music and modeling it internally and that sort of thing. So that same school where I had that really bad piano interview, the next day I went in for my theory interview um, and aced these, this, it was basically an oral skills test. I'm sure they looked at my grades and stuff too, but it, it was Indiana University and there's a lot of um, students teaching oral skills there. Um, and so the fact that I had really strong skills, but no perfect pitch, um, I think, you know, I, I got a good offer from them. And uh, so that's kind of how I ended up in music theory. As for how I ended up with oral skills, I mean, I think that comes out of doing so many th things in music too. So I, I've played a bunch of instruments. I, I played bassoon and uh, I sing, I've done choral stuff, I've done arranging, um, I've done piano. Um, so I, again, I feel like the more ways you have of experiencing music, the better you are at that core of, mm. of stuff that lies behind all of it. Um, and in fact, uh, I, was in, I was recruited into my high school band uh, to play bassoon because all the bassoonists were graduating and they were like, who has that core of skills where we'll give them a couple instrument, a couple lessons on like how to press the buttons and they'll be able to do it. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's those oral skills, right. That are at the core of it all. Um, honestly. So when I, when I did my dissertation in graduate school, it was not on pedagogy. It was on early music analysis. I think it was affected by, you know, our field kind of often has this view that pedagogy is not research it's too yeah. useful to be research <laughs> so oh man there's um, so a I hot think take I, right there <laughs> i love that i think i kind of had that you know was absorbing that implicitly and there was nobody who ever said those words to me um, but mm -hmm. I, I i thought of pedagogy as either you do these rigorous studies where you get you know institutional review board approval and you're studying some tiny little thing over five months and then you can say some small thing or you are like well this is what i did last thursday and it was pretty fun and neither of those really appealed to me <laughs> um but then as i went on in my career at utah state university they they definitely so the role i was hired into was primarily teaching and so when i'd publish on research they were like well you can double count that and i so i kind of took that as an invitation to get into the pedagogy world. And I found it really, really satisfying. Um, left most of my other research behind. Oral skills I find particularly interesting because it's so mysterious. So much of it is internal. You can't mm -hmm. point to it. You can't see it, right? You can't just be like, you know, a student didn't hear it. You can't just be like, no, listen for this thing and you're pointing at it. You, you have to, it's in time. Um, so all of that stuff is just so maddeningly mysterious. And this is what makes it both fascinating and frustrating. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's really kind of what brought me into the pedagogy world in the first place. And then also the oral skills pedagogy world in particular. So you didn't have the past trauma of having to sit in oral <laughs> skills classes. That's, that's what it takes, I guess. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> well, I should also say... One of my first jobs was with Gary Karpinski at uh, UMass Amherst. Um, I worked there for two years. Um, and, <laughs> of course, I read a lot of Karpinski in those years. <laughs> not that I hadn't read it before. Um, and that was just a really great grounding in traditional pedagogy. I, I, I shouldn't say traditional. Gary, Gary does a lot of very progressive things. 
Um, but very much rooted in the practices of sight singing and dictation that I hadn't had in my college experience. So I feel like I have a skepticism from my own background. Like, do you really need this kind of course to get good at this stuff? Um, but then also this grounding in solid but traditionally rooted pedagogy um, through that experience. So I feel like those two things together have been really valuable for the way I understand oral skills. I was just going to point out that how much oral skills was in the margin there, that it was only theoretically a part of theory class that I just <laughs> thought, wow, I had to write that down because I thought, <laughs> wow, has anything ever been so theoretical as to be a theoretical part of a theory class? It's pretty meta. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways. But I think that that speaks, at least it speaks to me because my oral skills are good, not because I was great in oral skills class. It's that I have had all these playing experiences and music experiences where I've had to improvise or play by ear mm -hmm. or uh, sight read and things like that f to get money. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. You know, yeah. and so it's it's not that I got really good at dictating a melody or I could sight sing even, or if I even knew solfege, but I had all these music making experiences that was building this core, as you say, right? This core of foundational skills. Um, and so could you talk a little bit more about, you know, what is this core and what are truly to use, to use the, the title, right? Of your, of your article, what truly are those oral skills that we want students to have? Well, thanks for refer referencing my article. Um, yeah, so that's there's that article where I give one answer to that. The, what are the truly oral skills in music theory online? Um, and I think that answer is pretty good, but I actually would say something slightly different today than what I put in that article. Um, I would say today that, or, to me, oral skills are models and strategies, um, internalized models of how music works and habits or strategies for how you approach it. So internalized models are things like you learn conducting patterns, and that is a physical model of how meter works, right? Um, and you internalize that so that physicality is something that you can bring to future uh, listening and performing experiences. Internalized models also, of course, include solfege. Um, and that model gets richer over time as you learn to go forwards, do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti, do, and then backwards, do, ti, la, so, fa, mi, re, do. And then you learn to skip around within it, and, th and then you understand relationships to chords and things like that. And you're gradually making that internalized model richer and richer. And that just gives you something tangible to hold up to this ephemeral, ephemeral experience of music, whether you're performing or listening. You've got a way to actually talk about it and measure it. It gives you something um, that's really that you can almost touch. Um, and so I think that's really cool about the internalized model part. Um, and then the strategies are things like um, orienting to key and to meter right from the beginning of any listening experience or of any performing experience. Um, understanding relationships, like looking for harmonic progressions in music that you're reading, uh, using eye movements when you're uh, sight reading music, things like that. But there are also strategies that you can use in improvisation that are maybe a little bit less traditional in oral skills classrooms. Um, but like, how, how do you approach coming up with new material? How do you think of structuring that new material? That sort of thing. So again, today I would say it's about habits and strategies. That's, and that means that almost anything is an oral skill because you're learning habits and strategies in your private lessons. You're learning habits and strategies of reading scores in your theory classes. 
um, you're learning habits and strategies of thinking in terms of context and history and ethnomusicology classes. But I feel like oral skills is what's at the core of it, where you're really focusing on what are those models that you're creating? How do you approach those strategies? So that's my answer today. Might be different in a few years. <laughs> I like it. I remember um, I heard you give a talk on uh, like what are the truly oral skills, so to speak, at SMT many years ago. It might have been in San Antonio. And um, I remember you posed the question, like a student who writes the Roman numerals one, two, to a baseline that goes do, re, is it really like if we if we take off massive points for that, are we really measuring an aural skill there or are we measuring a theory skill? This understanding. So they understood that the chord changed. They understood that something different happened. Right. They just chose the wrong. They even got the baseline right. They got right, the right. Exactly. Note. Exactly. Yeah. They got yep. the right. No, they just. Yeah. And uh, that question has stuck with me clearly for quite a while because that was that was a while ago. But I've thought about that many times in teaching oral skills. Like, what is it that we really are wanting them to be able to do? Is it to just answer a theory question that we've posed a different way? Or is it to demonstrate something that is actually an internalized sense of sound? Right. Um, yeah, and I think that's a incredibly valuable question to answer. I Paul and I had the same, probably the same oral skills teacher actually, because mm -hmm. yeah. we a year apart. We went to the same undergrad, and um, yeah, I would say that we we drilled a lot, but we didn't. He didn't actually tell us how to do any of it. Mm -hmm. um, I doubt Classic. he listens to this podcast, so I won't feel bad <laughs> saying that at all. Um, but we did a lot of practice of things like harmonic dictation but not a whole lot of like, here's how you figure out what chord that is. And I remember the first time I taught oral skills thinking like, well, when I learned this, it just felt like a four. So I wrote four, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? We're trying to get them to like, know to be able to draw that line. Like I, I was getting it right, but why? Like, yeah. how did I know that was a four? And that's the hardest part. We can't get in there. Can't get in their little heads and figure it out. Yeah, that's the hard it's a part black about box. teaching oral skills. It is. <laughs> yeah, it I, is. yeah, I. That's quite an honor that you remember that example that long. I'm, I'm I appreciate that very much. Um, and I also get this also when we're, we're distinguishing predominance, right? Four versus two in first inversion, right? You hear that there's predominant chords, scale degree four in the bass. You're hearing most of the information, but the label we use is entirely different. Capital IV versus lowercase. I, I with a six next to it, they look entirely different. Mm -hmm. And so we can easily be, um, you know, swayed by our theory training to say, oh, those are totally different chords. But I'll be honest, there, th there is music where I can't tell which one is because the, the mm -hmm. do or re, whatever it is, is so low in the mix or may not be sounding at all or something like that, that, you know, is that a meaningful distinction? Honestly, sometimes I think it is. And then sometimes I think it isn't. And so, you know, should we always be grading it? I don't know. Yeah, that's sort of And then thing. it turns out it was a two, six, five. Oh, man. <laughs> the twist. <laughs> that's just a four add six, then. Which is another label, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, yeah, so that's a great example. Or Roman numeral. We don't know. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> but no, I totally agree. I've often tried to... Uh, create one thing we've talked about 
between Paul and Jen and myself is rubrics and grading RL skills. It also correlates. Is your grading tool actually reflecting what is going on? If somebody puts four and the answer was two six, it's really not as far off as somebody putting one there or five, obviously. So you know, how do you nuance that grading tool? That's a lot of a lot of times I've uh, talked about this in my meetings with my TFs, you know, and uh, and I will say that I have I'll confess that I have heard a teacher in the past say use your ears when they didn't get the right answer on a dictation and I just thought that was the most ridiculous strategy <laughs> if you could even call it a strategy I just yeah. thought what are you saying use your ears of course they're using their ears <laughs> otherwise they wouldn't be in here yeah so yeah. you know it's it is hard the strategies it seems maybe simplistic to say models and strategies but yet the strategies there's so much depth to that and one of the things that I think you do a good job of in your online text, which if you haven't checked it out, please check out Tim's online open source RL skills text. Maybe we can provide a link um, to you. But describing some of the strategies and the reasons behind the descriptions you have are really, really fantastic. Maybe you can take us behind the curtain for a little bit of that because I think a lot of us in the day-to-day -day or you know if I'm in an RL skills class with one of my TFs I'm trying to give them the latest and greatest strategies on RL skills maybe you can give us a snapshot of what you've come to yeah there's there's so much to say there and Jen also mentioned this too right this idea of are we just giving people a series of exercises and we hope they get better or are we actually telling them how to do the exercises or or even just like after the fact if it didn't go well do we have advice for them um besides listen harder use your ears <laughs> right <laughs> that's what was going wrong you were using your nose the whole time if only i would have known that when i first taught oral skills that's right. yeah so i honestly i gary karpinski's oral skills acquisition that book from 2000 was really revelatory for me in this way because it was for me the first thing that really broke down what do you have to do to be able to do dictation um and he almost has this um idea of like the the instructor as a physician and you you know sort of check out different possible sources of the problem and then you hand somebody a prescription and then you say, okay, go off and do your physical therapy for two weeks, and then you check back in. Um, and that, that, I think, is a really useful model for thinking about things. I would go, I think, even farther than him in terms of um, trying to break things down and focusing on the components rather than this, these big skills of dictation and sight singing um, in and of themselves. Because I think that black box nature of things makes it so hard to see what's going wrong and what you could do to make it go right. Um, oral skills acquisition has this great example. I talk about it all the time. So I apologize to anybody out there who has talked to me about this before. Um, but it's his Gary's section on melodic dictation starts with an example, uh, where it looks like a student got every note right, except the last one in a dictation. But then it turned out in an interview that they heard every note, except the last one wrong, and then wrote it in the wrong clef. And so it all, all looked right. And so that was such a great example of how that's such a big thing. And so many steps um, along the way can go wrong. Um, and for people who haven't automated some of those steps, it's a huge working memory load for like mm -hmm. navigating that process and even thinking about how to get better. 
So that's really inspired me to go back to some of the fundamentals. And that's part of the reason why I wrote that article. What are the truly oral skills? Because I feel like when people are having trouble, we don't do them a lot of favors by focusing on the, com the composite skills that put everything together all the time. Um, and so um, in the textbook that you referenced that I wrote, uh, that's freely available online, Foundations of Oral Skills, um, the first chapters are really isolating things. The first one is basically, how do we pay attention to something? How do you just really focus in? How do you, you know, listen to different layers of a texture? Things like that. And then the second one is, how do you orient to musical meter? Using your body um, to, you know, find different layers and to think it, to use, you know, the tools of time signatures and things like that, but relating that to the way you just kind of naturally move to the music. And then the third one's about key and solfege. And so trying to make it so that people have these entry points where they can automate those skills so that when you get to the composite skills, um, you know strategies and you've practiced these things and you can actually then put them into a context rather than starting with the context and having no idea what's going wrong and just saying, well, I guess I'll try again and hope it goes better. <laughs> yep. I love that composite skills. I love that adjective because it gets gets to the the root of the all these other skills that are combined to create this composite, right? Now, this just as you were talking about it, and I was reading the attention chapter last night. Do you think students are having a harder time paying attention these days? I wonder. I, <laughs> I, I hear people talk about it a lot, and I don't like buying into the kids are worse these right, days narratives. Right. Uh -huh. yeah. So I uh -huh. want totally, to be skeptical, totally. and I don't really know. But it does at least seem possible. But I wonder if it's less about media and more of, you know, which people tend to blame, you know, internet, mm -hmm. scrolling on phones, things like that. And more about the, the um, I don't know, so many people fe feeling isolation, depression, anxiety these days. Uh, for all kinds of reasons. Um, that's what I tend to hear from students if I'm, you know, doing traditional tasks like a dictation. I walk around, they've got nothing written, and I say, could you hum it back to me? And they're like, I have no idea what just happened. My mind is yeah. a blank. Um, that's usually what they're telling me. Yeah. It's not that, um, well, I don't know. I guess they can't say that it wasn't the phones. But, but they're, they're often telling me, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, that I've, I'm, you know, I've got roommate trouble. I'm feeling really depressed yeah. in my life. My yeah. parents are going through a rough time, something like that. Mm -hmm. Which, by the way, is a reminder that so much of what we are grading as if it were the things students, you know, are doing on their best days are not on their best days. And, mm -hmm. and just oh, right. how much your working memory, your ability to focus, that sort of thing, which are so crucial to oral skills, rely on um, your internal state and yeah. your executive control mm. and those kinds of things that students uh, are often not very good at because of circumstances in their lives. It's so true. And we as a culture tune music out all the time. Yes. You're at the doctor's office filling out a form, there's music playing. You're just not paying attention to it. You're watching a movie. There's a story and dialogue going on. You're paying attention to that. And the music is just setting a mood in the background. And so, I mean, even I've had students, I play a song at the beginning of theory. I've talked about that many times, but I've had students ask me before why I don't ever show them like a music video or something like that. And I'm like, it's because you need to learn how to pay attention to a song with a specific idea in mind for more than just a few seconds. Yeah. I mean, I will confess that I, I definitely um, follow some people on TikTok and have seen <laughs> my fair share of TikTok 
little, you know, snips and have fallen down many TikTok rabbit holes. And the only sense in which it has changed my attention is for video. Hmm. So what I have found is that if I go to YouTube and there's like a 25 minute video, I'm like, that is so long. <laughs> <laughs> like, why is it so yeah. long? Yes. But I can still sit and read a book for an hour and a half. So, <laughs> you know, I mean, I kind of agree. I don't know that, that that's everything that's at fault. And I think yeah. you're right. The in, the kind of internal life is often mm -hmm. much more what's at fault. And that can be true for us, too. There are times where I'm like, I don't know what I just played for yep. them because I was mentally completely yeah. somewhere else. Well, and oftentimes, at least at my experience in oral skills, was oral skills was a stressful class. Yeah. Like, yes. you could be singing at any moment by yourself. You have this these dictations. And, you know, I stopped doing sight singing, in-person sight singing quizzes because of the pandemic, basically, because there was no way to do it. Uh, but I was like, why was I doing it in the first place? And so I, we don't do any more, uh, like, in class, like, hey, you, sightseeing quiz, stand up, or we don't mm -hmm. stand up. But still, right. um, because of that pressure and all the anxiety, and right, you, they can't focus. So we're wanting them to do this really intense thing. Um, there's so much anxiety and pressure with that. And so kind of what I'm hearing you say is, like, how can we kind of um, – <laughs> cool the temperature in the room and it seems like the kind of activities that you're advocating for that are beyond just these um, kind of performance-based things like dictation sightseeing help to kind of um, <laughs> cool the temperature in that room so that students can focus and be successful right yes absolutely so yeah you don't need research to tell you this but it, it does that uh, stress reduces your executive function and it mm -hmm. reduces your ability to pay attention and it reduces your working memory. And those are the things that you need to be able to do oral skills, right? Yeah. Um, you know, the internalized models might still be there, but basically you lose control over the situation. Um, yeah, I, I don't do um, on-the-spot singing either. When I've heard people talk about it, they, they tend to justify it by saying, you know, these are performers. They someday are going to need to be up in front of a an audience and you know need to work on that skill of shaking off the nerves well okay i can buy that but if that is an important thing that you are you think you are teaching them you should be teaching them how to do it uh, you shouldn't just be making them nervous all the time and saying you're going to get better at this because we know that doesn't necessarily work that way you have to actually incorporate it into your curriculum i think if you want to test something you should teach it and so if an important thing is making people get comfortable with nerves, you should be bringing in experts on how to, you know, calm the, calm the mind and, uh, you know, get into the zone and that sort of thing and really incorporating that into your pedagogy. And if you're not doing that, my opinion is that you shouldn't be doing that. Totally agree. Could not agree more. I think the practice of calling people and individuals in front of the class is so antiquated at this point. Maybe people still do it. I don't know. But one thing that I've noticed as we've migrated towards uh, submitting a video or at least an audio, if you're not comfortable with the video, it's okay, but we say video is preferred, people will be able to assess themselves. They'll watch the video back and they'll say, my goodness, let me retake that one time. Yep. You know, whereas before you're in the class, you, you sing it and it's almost like a shaming immediately. You know, you feel bad about it. They're walking out, as Paul said. They're embarrassed. You know, they don't want to sing again, that's for sure. It's almost like they shut down. But then when you do it on a video, 
in your own time. Maybe you're going to find a time when you're in a better headspace. You know, we give ours about a, a week to do it. So you have ones that are due that week. And then you look at it and you say, man, let me give it one more go. And then you start to actually self-assess and improve. And you see the failures as opportunities for growth. Which, as far as I'm concerned, that's a hill that I am willing to die on. You know what I mean? <laughs> and let's hope you don't have to, but yeah, I'm with you on that. <laughs> but yeah, it points to the importance of mindset, right? Uh, I feel like this is really something that we don't talk about enough in oral skills class, that we're judging people so often and on this thing that's so mysterious and hard to talk about that people can very, very quickly get the idea that I am good at oral skills. I am bad at oral skills. I can't sight read. I am terrible at dictation. And on the one hand, that's why we go to school, right? It's to learn. It's not because, not to get that pat on the back of, wow, you already are amazing. You're already good. And, you know, give us six, you know, hundred, hundreds of thousands of dollars and we'll, we'll give you the certification. It should be about getting better at things that we're not yet good at. Um, but to get better at them, you have to take risks. And as soon as you decide what you are, whether that's good or bad, that shuts down the risk taking. Um, and, you know, I want my oral skills classes to be a safe space where students are like, I'm going to come in and I'm going to be trying things out and some of them are going to sound bad. Um, and that that is welcomed because then those are opportunities for growth. And then they can actually, in, in fact, I even ask them to do a lot of self-evaluation and think about what were you not happy about there? How can you improve that? That sort of thing so that they are actually hopefully adopting that growth mindset instead of the, the, the fixed mindset of, well, I am who I am. That's the way it will always be. Yeah, it's such a label. Our skills is often this kind of labeling mechanism, whether we want it to be that way or not. And I, you know, I mean, I'm in my 40s. I have absolutely like pinpoint. I could smell it, like see it in the room. Memories of sight singing tests and dictation tests. I, you know, at my school, the teacher would there was like this long hallway to her door. And um, so you, we'd all be waiting outside the external hallway door, like just waiting in anxiety. And then she would open the door. The student who was kind of in this little hallway would go in and we would receive the paper, right. To, to practice. And then you go in, you get your note, you sing, you have to go. Right. I can still remember every bit of that experience and i'm a decent sight singer and have been since i was a little kid so you know like if that's the way that if my stress is encoding that for me in that way still this many years <laughs> later what is it doing for a student who's never heard a solfege syllable once in their life yeah. they're five weeks into freshman year they probably already are comparing themselves to all the people around them and what all those people can do and then we're saying like nope you still can't do this. Nope. <laughs> nope. You still, you know. I like to think of this in an analogy to, to sports. So, like, what if, you know, there, we have a, a class on running marathons and people show up the first day and we're like, okay, everybody's going to run a 10K. That's not a marathon, right? So we're, this is like, you know, a step along the way. Okay. A, B, C, D, F. All right. Next day, everybody shows up. Okay, we're going to do, you know, 15K today. You know, that's just not a good way to, you know, you, you build up from where people are uh, and you teach them how to do it and you give them scaffolding along the way and 
and especially if you're expecting growth, which I hope we are in the business of education, then you don't grade performance on a standard of perfection from day one, right? You, you grade components, you grade process, that sort of thing. And that's not to say that you can't ever grade the performance. You can even say that to pass this class, you have to be able to do X, Y, and Z. Um, but starting with that standard of perfection right from the beginning, grading every single you know pitch, every single rhythm is one point, uh, I think just communicates bad things about mindset and, and stress and all those kinds of things that are really destructive to student learning. Hmm. What do we do instead? We have to assess them, right? Like we don't right. have a choice. We have to assess them. Right. My dean would come in here and say today, we must give them a grade. Well, I think there are a couple of perspectives on that. One is I really like alternative grading systems. Uh, I experiment with them all the time, and I'm sure my students hate me for it because they have to learn, you know, what, we're, what are we doing this semester? Um, but um, I, I like incorporating self-reflection. Um, I think that's an appropriate way to grade some things, not the things that you absolutely have to be able to do to go to the next course. Um, but especially at the beginning, of course, as you're talking about process, doing grading self-reflections is really, really appropriate. And especially if then there are experiences where you want students just to do things like improvisation. I just want you to improvise and I don't want you to have the internal critic holding you back. So I'm just going to have you improvise and write a self-reflection. You know, there are circumstances like that uh, where doing the thing is more important than grading the absolute, you know, standard of perfection. Um, this semester, I'm also working with some standards-based grading. So I say at the end of Oral Skills 1, you, you've got to be able to find the tonic of a song that you're listening to within about 20 seconds. You've got to be able to tell me what the meter is within about 20 seconds. You've got to be able to do, you know, a couple of, of, of things like that. You have to be able to, so I'll hum you a pitch. You have to hum me a perfect fifth above. Um, and it needs to be on pitch right from the beginning so that they're practicing internal hearing and that sort of thing. Um, and I've got this list of things. If they check them all off by the end of the class and they've got all kinds of opportunities to do it, um, that's 40% of their grade. Without that, they can't go on to oral skills too. If they've got all of those things, they can, and everything else is pretty much based on participation, and that's because I have a class of 80 students, um, <coughs> which is pretty brutal. But, yes, yeah. Um, but yeah, I really like alternative grading systems and thinking about... Um, what is really necessary? What are the things that students really have to be able to do? If I can pivot here, uh, that's another thing that I, that I really like to think about in, in assessment is what is the outcome? I think too often we define the inputs. We're like, theory curriculum drives our topics and we're gonna do sight singing and dictation. So we just take some theory topic, second inversion chords. Okay, we're gonna sight sing a bunch of stuff with you know, arpeggiated second inversion chords, and we're gonna dictate a bunch of stuff that has cadential six fours and stuff like that in it. So we're defining the inputs, but we're not saying, what is the, the goal of that activity? We're not defining the output. I much prefer to define the output and then say, okay, therefore, what should we be doing in class? Sort of a backwards design mm -hmm. approach. Um, I feel like among other things, it helps us define the actual level that we need to get the students to. That level may not be singing tone rows because they're studying in theory class, right? Um, I've got mm -hmm. pretty good oral skills and I, I struggle with tone rows. You know, I can do it, but it takes me a little while. Um, but I feel like maybe I might have a, a goal of, I want students to be able to have at least a foundation for how to approach uh, sight reading atonal music. 
that has weird leaps in it. Okay, well then I need to think about um, what's a good way to test that, and then I need to think about what are the skills that I need, need to give students to do that. And then that defines my grading, not we're gonna do dictation because that's our standard task, and we're gonna do it on this topic because that's what we do in theory class. Um, yeah, I think oral skills could be a lot different if we were more outcome oriented. And I think it's one thing that holds back curriculum reform because as long as you're defining the inputs, you're not gonna change the inputs. Once you define the outputs, you can say, well, what would be a better way of doing that? Yep. And then suddenly you have some ideas for what you might change. I love that. That reminds me of one of our quotables. Wasn't that Blaze Ferrandino's quotable about oral skills outcomes? We'll have to dig through the archive and see. <laughs> yeah, something to Blaze was like episode three. That was a long time side ago. Side by <laughs> side, yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. I think that's really, really fantastic. And when I design a theory lesson, I think about the outcomes. Mm -hmm. What yeah. do I want my students to know? at the end of this class that they didn't know at the beginning. And then how do I get them there? Yep. And that path looks a lot different depending on the class period. So then why in oral skills are we shifting that paradigm unnecessarily? Think about the outcome. Obviously think about how it correlates to theory. We don't want to throw that out, but yeah, you're totally right. Go for the outcome. How are we going to get there? All of that. So in the book, you talk, you have some exercises and you talk about group activities in oral skills, which is not something I certainly ever did. Uh, we were always kind of on our lonesome, quietly scribbling, you know, so what are some group activities and, you know, how do they work out when you've used them in class? Yeah. So I want to brag that there's a whole chapter on ensemble skills in this mm -hmm. textbook. Um, so much of what musicians do is in groups. Mm -hmm. And if we want students to use the skills we're teaching when they're in those ensembles, it would be great if we could give them opportunities, that laboratory environment, to try them out in an ensemble situation. Uh, but also, there's just so much value in peer teaching um, and learning from colleagues. Um, and then, of course, there's the fact that I've got that 80-person oral skills class, and so I just, you know, I have to rely on peer teaching to get some of that work done. I just am not interacting with every student all the time. And if I'm lecturing in front of 80 people, we're not learning our own skills very well. Um, so um, yeah, group, group activities are really important. One of my favorite is to have students basically form small ensembles and I give them some music. Um, and uh, I've done this mostly vocal, with vocal music, but I think it would work well with instrumental music too. You just get some, um, some issues with like some people's instruments being a lot louder or bigger than other people's and some things to work out logistically. Um, but you know, you give people some music and um, you know, my class is early enough in the morning that I can often find three or four extra rooms around the school, the, 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 the music building um, to send ensembles out to. And I say, okay, you're going to take turns leading rehearsal. You got 10 minutes. Each person will have a page. After 10 minutes, you switch leaders and pages. So they're constantly reading more music and they're leading the ensemble, which requires that they engage in error detection, real error detection, not, you know, errors that I designed, but errors that are actually happening because people screw up all the time. Um, and the people who are being led are practicing their sight reading and they're doing it in an authentic sort of situation. That's a situation where um, uh, self-reflection is a really good way of getting at you know, what are they learning from this and, and, and assessment. Um, but I really like that activity because of how it takes those skills that we've been working on 
and then puts it in a realistic context. I'm hopeful that then that invites them to take those skills out of the classroom and apply them elsewhere. This is another anecdote that I love to share. When I was in graduate school, I had to help with uh, incoming graduate student um, entrance exams, including oral skills, you know, sight singing exams. And people would come in with this like uh, pre-apologetic look on their face and be like, oh, I haven't done this in two years because, you know, we tend to front, front load oral skills classes. And I wanted to be like, you haven't made music in two years. You haven't read music in two years. You haven't improvised in two years. You haven't mm -hmm. listened to music in two years. How are you not seeing that this is something you're doing all the time? But they haven't harmonic dictated. Or well, okay, fair. that's the thing. That's the thing. That's what they associate it, right? It's not like making music is an oral skills, right? <laughs> it's I haven't dictated a melody in four years, right? Right, exactly. So I want to oh. give them that invitation to see how what I'm doing connects to what they're doing outside of the class. And I think ensemble skills are a really great way to do that. Yeah, one thing here, I'll, I'll float this idea by you, Tim, and you can weigh in. One thing I thought about doing was asking some of the ensemble directors to video a introduction almost to an oral skills class. For example, today you're going to be able to hear a discrete lines within a harmonic pattern. Could you pick out a flute line when you're in front of a band? I don't know. Something like that, you know, that the ensemble director kind of straight from the horse's mouth kind of thing and offer that as maybe an introduction to an online module or something. I think that's a fantastic idea. I love it. Maybe I'll go forward with it. <laughs> Too afraid to ask some of the ensemble directors. Maybe I'll get some more courage thanks to this episode. <laughs> I should say, before I wrote this online textbook, I did as preparation interview a bunch of my colleagues about what do you use oral skills for? What do you think that you learned from oral skills classes? What was valuable? What was not? That sort of thing. And so I think making those connections and going into class knowing what they are is really useful. Yeah. Could you talk to us a little bit about the process of writing your textbook? Because we sure. often, I think pretty much anyone who teaches theory or all skills thinks, man, I should write a textbook. <laughs> <laughs> but then usually you talk yourself out of it, you know, within 45 minutes. Uh, but you actually did. And it's, it's over 600 pages. So this was, a, this was, this was, this was, a, this was an investment, right? So talk to us about kind of how it started and kind of the process of writing something like this. Yeah. I don't know how it, how it happened. Honestly, <laughs> I, I feel like I've spent the past four or five years, uh, spending my professional life critiquing the current state of oral skills, uh, education through like, I feel like it's problematic that oral skills is equated with sight singing and dictation. I feel like it's problematic that we're not bringing instruments into the classroom. I feel like it's problematic that we're pegging everything to the order and topics of a theory curriculum. I feel like it's problematic we're not making connections out into things that people are doing out in the real world. And at a certain point, you have to stop complaining and actually try to make <laughs> things happen the way you think they should happen. Um, and so I, I had had in, in my mind, as you say, for a long time, uh, the, the idea of writing a textbook. Um, but I really did not want to work with a traditional publisher because I wanted to go my own way. And I didn't want a publisher to be like, I'm sorry, people need to have their interval drills. Um, <laughs> if you ain't got them, they're not going to buy this book. <laughs> right. So, and I also wanted to be able to adjust it over time and that sort of thing. So this open educational resource model 
freely available online really seemed like the perfect solution. And also, I feel like I want to have an impact. Like, I care about how people learn this stuff. Um, and so I want my stuff to be out there and available to people. Um, I got an opportunity because I finally decided to take a sabbatical um, last semester. Um, and I got some grant funding from the, the library on campus. And I know I'm really fortunate in having those opportunities and that kind of support, and not everybody has that. I, I would say it would not have been possible without you know, having that time carved out um, and without having some support, which I mostly use to pay some student assistance to you know, make some graphics and expand out some discussions and, and things like that. Um, and then, yeah, I wrote it in a semester. So it's still a little rough. <laughs> Um, you know, I've been thinking about this stuff a lot. So, you know, if I were just starting to think about it last semester, there's no way it could have happened. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, there's still some things, there's a lot of things that need to be sort of smoothed out around the edges. I should also give a shout out to my collaborators. So uh, Danny Stevens uh, was somebody I was meeting with. He's at the University of Delaware. I was meeting with weekly during this project and he wrote a number of sections. Originally, the idea was to co-write but he wasn't on sabbatical. And so at the end of the process, he was like, you know, why don't we list this as by you? And then, you know, we can say with contributions by. And so that's how it ended up being. But he was an incredible collaborator. Also worked with Sarah Gates at Northwestern. At the beginning of the process, I've been really inspired by her work. Um, she ended up having to leave before the writing process really began. Um, but then also having uh, an OER librarian at Utah State um, who was supporting the, pro uh, the project um, they had a copy editor that we were able to use. Um, so yeah, it takes a lot of resources and it takes a village, as they say, to, to make something like that happen, even with the rough edges that it still has. Okay, I will ask, how on earth do you teach an oral skills class with 80 students in it? That sounds horrific, honestly. Well, I, I don't recommend it to anybody. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I don't even do that. So it's... Um, when I got to Utah State, oral skills was not this big. Um, and it was in smaller sections of, you know, the traditional 15 to 20 or something like that, taught by whoever had time. And that's been one of my um, pet peeves for a long time, the taught by whoever <laughs> part, whoever has time. Um, and so I said, I am going to interact with every student. They're going to all have a teacher who cares about this stuff and has researched it and knows some of the best practices and that sort of thing. Um, and then our department has grown. So that, <laughs> that, that we're at a point where we need to change things, frankly. Um, but I do think that there are some things that you can do in a large group that are really productive. And I think that sort of group learning is a really productive way to, to handle it, uh, letting people learn from each other. Um, and, um, yeah, so we do tons and tons of group work in class. We also have smaller sections on Fridays, although those are still um, as large as 26, 27. Um, and then the, the big issues come in terms of assessment, especially if you want to assess something that's really best assessed one-on-one. -on -one. That, that just becomes extremely difficult. You pick your battles uh, and you say, these are the most um, important things that I absolutely have to hear every student one-on-one. -on -one. And then here are some things I'm willing to compromise on where, you know, it might be best if I could, you know, have them sing something back to me, but maybe I could have them write something down so they can all do it together and then we can grade it on paper. Um, and then some things that you would like to assess that you just can't. 
Um, and the other issue is, of course, the amount of noise in the room when we're doing group work. So, yeah, we're, we're at an inflection point where we need to change that. But um, I do think there are things that you can do in a large class. So, yeah, that's good. Yeah, I just am picturing you drowning in videos to watch of people sightseeing things. It's hard enough. My cap is 12, and sometimes I'm like, I'm so behind watching these videos. Can't imagine. 80. That's a lot. Yeah, and that has necessitated you to be creative, right? Yes. Um, in not just group activities, but with assessments and everything. So um, what would you recommend, you know, for a person who's listening and thinking, okay, I'm teaching oral skills and I want to try to push, you know, beyond just, you know, the sight singing, the dictation things, but maybe I have a fixed curriculum. Maybe I can't change everything. Like what is one thing you'd recommend someone do just to kind of push their creativity or push what, um, what's being assessed or done in these types of classes? What would you recommend to a person like that? Well, there's any number of things I could say, but I think the biggest thing is a, is really at all times asking yourself, am I teaching or am I sorting? Am I helping people who aren't good at things yet get better? Or am I just saying, you know, reporting who are already the good students and who are the bad students? And I think that that, that, um, that mindset that you can bring to class changes how you do things. So, um, yeah, and I think it's good even within the traditional sight singing and dictation sort of situation, I still do some dictations in class. And when I'm, when I'm doing that, I'm, I'm walking around between hearings and I'm using body language to show that I'm on students' side. Like I'm, I, they're sitting in a chair. So I like crouch down next to them. I get my eyes to their level or even lower to show that I'm supporting them in this process. And I'm asking them honest questions about, you know, what's going well and what's not going well. Um, and and I think that's a much better process than constant assessment and constant, like, are you good enough sort of um, approach. So, so that's one thing. I also think that, again, focusing on some of these component skills and being really aware of what those component skills are is really important. One of the reasons I wanted my text to be an OER text and freely available online was for people who, were, who are in that kind of situation where they're like, I've got this set curriculum there's this textbook we already use um, and it's full of dictation melodies, but somebody's struggling with, let's say, musical memory. They just can't remember things very well. Well, now my textbook is available and there's a chapter on musical memory. And you know, before they meet with that student, they can go read that chapter or they can send the student to that chapter and get some ideas on how to work with them, um, have some supplementary materials that don't cost them or the student any additional money. Um, so hopefully that gives some support to some of the pieces that can go wrong, uh, even within a traditional curriculum. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Cause it is the, 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 you mentioned it, the black box, right? It's the, yeah. how do you explain this? And that's, that's a really good, um, visual of teaching or are you sorting? Cause like yeah. you, the students already know who's good and who's bad. You already know, you know, who's, who's struggling and who's, who's doing fine. And yeah, that's a lot to think about. And I think when you hear students, students say stuff like that, you have to have an approach mm -hmm. to helping them realize they're on an educational journey. Yeah. I talk to my students a lot about adding the word yet to the ends of those statements. Mm -hmm. I, I can't do melodic dictation. And I'm saying, yet <laughs> right, right? Mm -hmm. um and yeah really 
And, and when the people say, oh, I'm so bad at this, saying things like, that's why you're here. <laughs> you're, you're going to be better in a few months. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, this has been such a treat, Tim, to chat with you about all things RL skills. And I'm actually really sad that this is finals week because now <laughs> I can't take any of these ideas that we talked about and use them until, you know, September. And so um, I have sightseeing exams to listen to, which now I'm like, well, what am I even doing that for? Um, <laughs> everyone gets an A. <laughs> um, but uh, before, before we, we let you go, we always like to ask some rapid fire questions to our guests um, and uh, just on theory, all skills, music, whatever. Uh, so Ben or Jen, do you have, an, uh, have one off the top of your head? I'm ready. Okay. Okay. I think, Ben, were you pointing at me? <laughs> okay. Um, so let's say you are that adjunct and you have no control of your curriculum. You have the book. You have to do it this one particular way. What is the one small change someone in that situation could make that you think would make things a lot better? Oh, that's a tough question. A lot of it depends on what exactly are the goals of that book and that curriculum. Um, I... You know, I want to think about the ideal situation where you have a little bit, a little bit of freedom. So, for example, um, you know, a lot of textbooks short circuit the orienting to the key part of listening skills, right? So, um, you know, you give a dictation and you're like, "Here's the key," and you play a progression and you tell people to write it and see, and the starting note is in G or, or is G, and then. You know, students can just kind of follow contour, not necessarily here in terms of scale degrees or here in relationship to the key. Um, I think in, in that kind of situation, building in something where you're helping the students who don't already orient to key do that is really useful. And so that, you know, I can't not plug my textbook. That's chapter three. <laughs> um, but uh, hopefully that then scaffolds to better success in the things that you're already doing. So thinking about those components um, and how doing them better helps everything go better, even if it's not a really progressive goal. Um, but yeah, it really kind of depends on the situation. Yeah, just orienting to the key is sometimes something a lot of students struggle with or mm-hmm. knowing what solfege syllable or scale degree, you know, they're starting a dictation on and things mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. And so that it's so very, it varies so broadly from your class. Cause some students, I mean, I call them, uh, hand sign ninjas. They're like those <laughs> choir kids that just like, yeah. you know, Especially they, Texas. yeah, I mean, they're, they've got the hand signs going and you mm-hmm. play a note and they're just like me, you know, mm-hmm. la, like, Tay, they just like know it, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. then I have like a tuba player who's, who's who's never sung in his life, and they're like, it's magic, right? Yeah. And so, being able to orient that and the process in doing that is so important. Mm-hmm. Can I just add? This is kind of a tangent. That that soulfish is so interesting to me. Whatever systems people use, you know, numbers, whatever. Mm. Um, there are those students I can point to for whom it is like life changing. Suddenly they can do anything. You know, they can sight read anything. They're, they're hearing totally differently. There are those students then. That was me. Uh-huh. Okay. I, I probably me too. It was just so early in my life. I just, you know, didn't, didn't have the before <laughs> or don't remember the before. <laughs> I was a kid um, too. Yeah. 
Uh, and then um, they're the students for whom, yeah, it's fine. Yeah, okay, that's kind of interesting. And, the, you know, it helps them with some things. Um, and then they're the students for whom it never seems to click. And I always wonder, is that about, you know, the 10,000 hours of exposure that you might need? Or is that just about, you know, if there's one thing you learn teaching oral skills, it's just that everybody hears a little bit differently. And that's most obvious maybe with people who have absolute pitch. They hear yeah. so differently from from each other and then also mm -hmm. from people who don't have absolute pitch. Yeah. Um, but then there must be so many other different variables that affect the ways that people hear music. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I wonder, are there students for whom that solfege is just never going to be a useful tool? And I wish there were research on that because I don't have the answer yet. Dang, rapid, rapid fire for us on that, huh? <laughs> I think there are people that solfege never clicks for and that it will never be a useful tool. I'll weigh in and say what I, in the one minute that I've thought about that so far. <laughs> um, but I don't think that it means that they will never get um, proficient in oral skills, oh, certain no. right. oral skills. Absolutely. So I, I will make that distinction clear. Yeah. I mean, um, but yeah, I, I've got point. students who they can't, they don't know solfege, but they, they'll sight read a melody perfectly, you know, just yeah. singing on la, you know, they, and they're, they play the trumpet or they play the violin. Um, solfege yeah, is that, no use for them. Say, it's yeah. often instrumentalists. I know several instrumentalists who are like, yeah, solfege did nothing for me, but they're brilliant. They have great ears. You know, mm -hmm. they're incredible musicians. So maybe that it's that there's some other sort of like physicality to it or something that works. Yeah. When Sorry, you're tangent number two here. <laughs> It, this, is, is that, this is the longest um, uh, rapid, fire. Sorry. rapid fire answer I think we've ever had. That's great. Keep going. I, I, I think another thing we don't do enough of in oral skills classes is call on instrumental imagery, like physical imagery associated mm -hmm. with an instrument. Because I know when I'm transcribing something or trying to figure out a chord progression, I'm figuring it out on the piano. And I don't have absolute pitch, so I'm choosing a random key. I'm often way off, but I'm like imagining what it would feel like to play that chord progression, and then I know what it is. Um, and more and more as students, you know, especially if students struggle with solfege, I'm like, oh, can you imagine playing it on your violin or your guitar or your trumpet or whatever? And sometimes that seems to be the secret for them. Now, in, in my ideal world, I'd love for them to have both of those strengths. So I'm not going to mm -hmm. stop teaching one, but it made me realize that I'm probably underplaying that possible way of understand, you know, that internalized model to use the language that I've been using. Um, so, yeah, I think that's something we need to be a lot more conscious about explicitly calling on in the classroom. Well, and so we're just going to stay on this rabbit trail that we're on now. <laughs> awesome. um, we had a TSMT presentation years ago where um, he talked about using keyboard skills as a way to bring in that sort of kinesthetic element. And he had us do this exercise where we just sang a melody or a scale or something in our head. And then he had us pretend we were playing it on the piano. And he asked for how many people in the room did it get louder? Hmm. And almost everyone raised their hands. And then he said, if you are an instrumentalist, play that scale on your instrument. How many of you did it get even louder still? And almost everyone who had said yes before said yes, but me and a couple other people said no. Hmm. And it's because I play horn and it's a transposing instrument. So the second I was fingering it on my horn, it was quieter. I could still hear it, but it was way quieter. And I think it's because my brain knows those aren't the right notes. Interesting. Like, 
like, you know, in terms of pitch space, those it's not the same as the piano. So I was actually audibly like quieter because I was hearing it elsewhere. But so there's even more research to be done. Here we go. Lots of projects for the summer. Totally. And I'll tag in that I did not have solfege as a kid at all. I just had my trumpet and I will to this day do trumpet fingerings mm-hmm. while I'm teaching the class and I'll tell my students that are struggling I said if you watch me while I'm teaching the class I'll be doing the trumpet fingerings because that's kind of my tool for getting to the pitch where I, where I am and I don't know, it, yeah it's so different for every single person mm-hmm. that's, that's exactly right mm-hmm. well should I hit you with my rapid fire then? maybe this one will be more rapid I don't know, we'll <laughs> find out uh, mine was going to be what is the least useful thing that we're spending too much time on in our skills? Just in general, I know it's hard to generalize, everybody's programs are different, but from your experience, talking to people, putting together the book, collaborating with colleagues, what is the thing that you say, you know, we could really serve to trim this down? Ooh, that's, as you say, that's really tough. Um, this answer will get some people excited and other people not. Dictation. <laughs> I, I feel like the skills involved in dictation are really important, but I don't find it a really good teaching tool. So going back to that issue of are we teaching or are we sorting? I think that dictation relies. So if you, again, I always go back to Gary Karpinski, Oral Skills Acquisition. He says the difference between dictation and transcription is that dictation puts such high demands on your, your in the moment memory and focus. And those are valuable skills, but they are they're really capacities, they're not skills. And research suggests that you don't actually get a larger memory with time. You don't get better at focusing over time. Although you do suffer on days when you didn't get enough sleep or you haven't had your coffee or you know, you're know you going through a tough time. Um, so so <laughs> it's such a stressful task and it's so focused on judgment rather than teaching. I'm, again, I'm not gonna say we should never do it, but using it as our primary teaching tool doesn't seem right to me. So in the, in the textbook, there are separate chapters on transcription, which I want to say is like chapter 9 or chapter 10 or something like that, and then dictation, which is like chapter 13, because I see transcription as a useful tool where you're you know, trying to write down what you hear. Um, it doesn't even have to be into you know, five-line five notation. It can be into proto-notation or whatever. But like figuring out what's going on in music, using those models, building them is really important. Having the space to try out things, different ways of hearing, that sort of thing, I think that's where the learning comes from. Um, and then maybe once you're great at it, then dictation makes sense as a kind of like, okay, let me test my focus and my memory. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, I think it's, to me, it's not the right teaching tool as our primary teaching tool. Can you give a definition for transcription in relationship to dictation? Because some people might think that those are the same thing, great, right? Great question. So how do, you, how do you differentiate those two things? Right. So, yeah, thank you for asking that. Because, yeah, people do use them interchangeably sometimes or different ways. <clears throat> I use the, the definitions where dictation is like that special classroom situation where the teacher's in charge of the process. You get a limited number of hearings and you get a limited number of time. And usually you're just focused on some component, like just the melody just the chord progression, just the bass line, just the rhythm. Whereas transcription is the process that's a little bit more self-directed, I guess. You know, teacher says, here's your recording, you got a week to notate it, and you can try out all kinds of things. Um, and, you know, however many hearings you need, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, 
the, theoretically the reason to do dictation rather than transcription is it's it's what forces you to use your memory. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't, I'm not sure that forcing people to do something is always the best way to get them better at it. <laughs> I think if you're like, you know, this is a process that will get better if you focus on using your memory. Try to do as much as you can from each hearing. Mm -hmm. Try to go into each hearing with an intention of what you're going to listen for so that you're really maximizing your ability to pay attention to things and exercising that, that strategy of controlling your attention. Um, I, I feel like self-motivation uh, is enough to get most students to do that um, mm -hmm. because they understand that's a useful skill to, to develop. And I don't think you always have to force them to do it. I think oftentimes students do their dictation homeworks like transcriptions. Yes. And then they come in and we talk about this all the time. Like if you're doing those homeworks like a transcription, you're not going to be ready for when you have to do that, like on a dictation assessment, because those are two different skills. Like you're practicing your transcription skills rather than your dictating skills. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. All right. So my rapid fire question is, if I, don't, I don't even know if I remember it anymore. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. Um, so um, favorite artist or band or even a song that you love to include in your oral skills class? Hmm, in oral skills. I'm not sure I can answer that for oral skills. I try to bring in as much different stuff as I can. And I guess this is an opportunity to plug another aspect of the book, which is that there are embedded Spotify playlists mm -hmm. all over it. And I'm going to be building those out over the summer because I was teaching from it this semester and finding all kinds of other examples. Um, I try to bring in, you know, stuff in different languages, stuff with different kinds of instruments. Um, yeah. Can I switch to theory? Yes, you, we can okay. pivot to theory. <laughs> okay. So, you know, while my research is really on oral skills, um, I love teaching, especially beginning levels of theory as well. Um, and my favorite piece to have my students write their final papers on is a shape note piece by an American composer named Sarah Lancaster from the 1860s. And it, it, the reason I love doing it is... Um, Okay, so another hot take here. I don't think that even classical musicians necessarily need to know that Bach didn't want to write parallel fifths because <laughs> how does that change how you play his music? Um, <clears throat> but anyway, uh, so we do a sort of shortened um, part writing unit because I do think the general idea of coordinating voices, writing them as melodic lines through chord progressions, things like that is useful. Um, I do mention some of those rules and we do a little bit of practice with them. But then I feel like it's really useful to give them a, a piece that's very different. This piece is called The Last Words of Copernicus. And if you know anything about shape note music, it tends to be raucous. It's not a performance tradition. It's for a bunch of people to get together and sing at the top of their lungs. Um, <laughs> and so it's a really kind of joyful tradition. And I think I like I like ending with that in the semester, yeah. but then also it challenges a lot of the ideas that we've been working with because it is four part writing. Um, and, you know, you can see elements of things that we've talked about, but then there are also chords that don't seem to really stack as chords, um, you know, chords missing their thirds, their parallel fifths into the cadences, things like that. And I just asked them, so what's the effect of that? Um, and get, you know, I do whatever I can to say these are not rules. These are just, you know, historical guidelines, things like that. I'm not even sure they're relevant today. But even so, students get this idea in their heads of this is the way that my teacher thinks music should be written. And so to put something in front of them that clearly connects to that tradition, it's from the mm -hmm. 1800s, um, but still has some things that, according to what they've learned, are, are not right. Um, 
I think is a really useful way for them to think critically about what they're learning and the value of those things, but also the value of other ways of doing things. So mm -hmm. I think I, I just really enjoy working with that piece. Did not anticipate that. I was anticipating <laughs> any number of things. I did not I did not anticipate something from the shape note tradition, but I love it. <laughs> I'm kind of amazed that no one actually asked minor do or minor law in this episode. But that's okay. <laughs> oh. Can we have a uh -oh. bonus? Can we have a bonus? I like minor do, but All right. <laughs> I'm sure whatever people use is good, is helpful. So <laughs> Oh, that's great. So as we wrap up, uh, maybe, Tim, let our listeners know a little uh, how they can find you if you want to be found out there and um, what you have cooking. I mean, you are you're continuing to kind of fine tune your text. Um, and so I don't mean to rush you and, and ask you what you're doing next, but maybe you have some other things cooking as well. Yeah. So um, first, let me just say I love collaborating. I think it can be really uncomfortable especially reaching out to people and saying, do you want to work on this thing? Um, but I really have enjoyed collaborating with Danny and Sarah on this textbook. Um, I've done some other co-authored things, uh, a review in JMTP recently of, um, of oral skills, texts and apps mm -hmm. and things like that. Um, preparing some things for SMT, hopefully for next year that will be collaborative. Um, so if anybody out there is intrigued by anything that I've been talking about or is like, I could do this section of your textbook better, right, will you let me? Um, the answer very well might be yes, or at least like, let's talk about it. Um, uh, I, I would love to do that. So my email is timothy.chenette, C-H-E-N-E-T-T-E at uh, usu.edu. So that's not too hard to find. Um, I also have a blog that you know, gets a reader every two months or so. Um, it's called earsearch.wordpress.com. Um, the name is supposed to sort of evoke research and also like, you know, creativity. Um, although some people think it sounds gross. So sorry, if, sorry if that's you. <laughs> um, but anyway, so so I try to I, I post things there very occasionally. It's been very occasional in the past year, but I'm hoping to get back to it this summer. Um, yeah, in terms of future projects, yeah, I'm really focused on the textbook right now, and I, I really want to uh, make that better over the summer. It was primarily designed as a music as an oral skills one textbook. I would like it to support multiple levels of instruction. There is stuff in there that applies to chromatic music, that applies to modulation, stuff like that, but it's it's not yet um, fully really um, built out for that. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd also like to just do more workshops to facilitate people thinking about curriculum reform, thinking about outcome orientation rather than defining just the inputs. Um, uh, and yeah, those are the kinds of things that I'm working on right now. You just made it to the end of another episode of Note Doctors, the music theory and pedagogy podcast. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and review the podcast, and you can always reach us at notedoctorspodcast at gmail.com with comments, questions, or show ideas. Thanks for listening.